happiness is the motive of every person. Those were the words of the great philosopher Blaise Pascal. He went on to say that happiness is the goal of every person who has ever walked on the face of the earth. Everyone wants happiness, even those who want to take their own life. For so many of us, it's been a pursuit that's been elusive. We find that it's much easier to believe in the notion of happiness than to actually attain it. What do you think is the key to happiness? Take a second to think about it. What's the key to happiness? Is it a new car? Perhaps a solid marriage, a clean house, a pain-free body? Just one more dark chocolate mint Tim Tam. What do you think are the key ingredients one must have in their lives to be happy? For honest with ourselves, answering a question like that often reveals that our hearts are too often focused on the gifts rather than the giver. When we think about what makes us happy, pretty quickly our mind forms a list of what we want, what we desire. And we think that if we can get these things in our lives, then we'll be happy. So what is the key to the good life? Well, if you've brought your Bible today, please turn with me to the book of Proverbs. You'll find it in the middle of the Old Testament, almost halfway through your Bible after the book of Psalms. Now, Proverbs is in a section of the Bible called Wisdom Literature, along with Job and Song of Solomon, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. These books are characterized by wise teaching intended to instruct us about divinity and about virtue. Now, the book of Proverbs, it was written by several authors, including Lemuel, Agor, along with a few larger portions written by King Solomon himself. Now, they serve as basic material for the Christian life. In fact, much of it is a vast collection of common sense, When you read it, you think, okay, well, that makes sense. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for pointing that out. And yet, at the same time, the wisdom is incredibly profound. It's also a bit difficult to read. You know, if you've gone through Proverbs and you're reading through the Bible in a year plan, it's a bit difficult. You may wonder at times how specific verses connect with the verses that follow or the verses that precede it. In fact, it would be difficult to preach through the book in our normal verse-by-verse exposition. I mean, think about these consecutive verses from Proverbs chapter 17. Starts out talking about the tongue here. A wicked man listens to evil lips. A liar pays attention to a malicious tongue. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are... The pride of their children. Arrogant lips are unsuited to a fool. How much worse, lying lips to a ruler. Well, there's great truth in these verses. But trying to make kind of sense out of their connection 
or preaching verse by verse will ultimately give you a headache in the book of Proverbs. Now, if you look at the structure of the book as a whole, chapters 1 through 9 and chapter 31 flow nicely as interconnected teaching, with the first nine chapters forming a sort of introduction to the book. They are a series of poems selling wisdom to us. They're written there to motivate us to get into the book of Proverbs, to receive its teachings with an eager heart. These chapters make the case that we should care about wisdom. But then starting in chapter 10, you have various proverbial statements clumped together like I just read. Each individual proverb speaking to part of the Christian life that is meant to instill godly counsel. It's meant to build up the church. Now it is thought that originally this book was used as a training manual for young men. It was meant to address various aspects of life. So that's why you see throughout the book uh, the authors addressing the readers as my son. And then over and over again, wisdom is depicted as a woman. And one of the reasons is that wisdom is not so much a mastering of rules as much as it is a love affair with wisdom. Now, you should love wisdom. And so the way to study Proverbs isn't necessarily to get a handle of the flow of teaching or to look how the verses connect with one another by moving verse by verse by verse. No, instead, it's to study it thematically. And so, for instance, if you want to study a particular topic like greed, then you'd want to go through the entire book of Proverbs, all 31 chapters, and see what all the authors say about the topic of greed. You could do the same for anger or lust or pride. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to do just that. I'll probably take four weeks a year to hit various themes in the book over the next several years. And this year, we'll discuss four things, wisdom, our words, friendship, and anger. And since we'll be looking at various passages in the sermons, you'll be doing the same thing in your small groups. There won't be just one passage, and your small group passages may or may not be featured in the sermon, so much so as the general theme will be studied. And so today, let's take a look at what the book of Proverbs has to say to us about wisdom. So if you're taking notes this morning, our outline will be as follows. First, we'll see the importance of wisdom. Second, we'll see the folly of man. And third, we'll see the wisdom of God. The importance of wisdom, the folly of man, and thirdly, the wisdom of God. So first, the importance of wisdom. Now, why is this important to us? And so what about wisdom? We'll flip over to chapter 8 in the book of Proverbs and look at verses 10 through 12. The author tells us just how important it is. There in verse 8. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, And nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. Now the author says here that wisdom is more precious than rubies. But it goes even further that wisdom is greater than anything you could ever desire. It's greater than all the wealth in the world. It's greater than all the power in the world. It's greater than all the fame in the world. 
It's far more important than the greatest of circumstances. More valuable than anything on this earth. It's quite a remarkable statement. See, there are many people who have great talent and intellect and charisma, credentials, beauty, whose lives don't go that well. You know, we don't have to look that far to find famous people who have so much talent and all the rubies money can buy, and yet they're miserable and make terrible decisions that dig them further and further and further down into deep depression. No, they lack something far more valuable than those things. Wisdom. We've even seen people have good aspirations to do noble things. And we've seen those who have gone out with the aspiration of eradicating poverty. Well, that's a good and noble thing. But they go out and they only cause more and more trouble at times because lacking wisdom. See, for instance, you go out to help a poor family out of poverty. It's noble. It's right. You can do it ethically. At the, at the same time, you can ruin their lives because you lack wisdom to know how poverty actually works. Now, life doesn't always present us with straightforward black and white issues. Now, think about the vast majority of decisions that you make. I mean, do you get married? Who do you marry? Do you break up? What school do you go to? Do I move, up, move there? Do I move here? Do I confront the person? Do I take a risk? Do I turn down this job offer? Now, oftentimes you're faced with decisions that don't seem to be leading into a specific direction of sin. We're often looking at two good or two decent ideas simultaneously. Do we just break out the pros and cons, take out the sheet, draw the line in the middle, and weigh them against each other? I mean, what do we do? Maybe you're here this morning. And you have this sinking feeling about an issue in your life. And you are without wisdom on how to handle it. You need wisdom. It's more valuable than all the gold in the world. See, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in all circumstances. And the Hebrew word actually can have the nuance of skill. Particularly, the skill of choosing the right course of action for the desired result. In the framework of Proverbs, it denotes skill in the art of godly living. See, it's important for when the moral code of the Bible is just not clear. And because much of life is not covered by the rules, this is of crucial importance. Now, friends, we need help from God moment by moment by moment. Not just in the big five moments of our lives, but in the millions and millions of mundane moments throughout our lives. It's these moments that we live in each and every day, down at the level where there are no hard and fast rules to go by. That's why Proverbs 19.8 says, he who gets wisdom loves himself. In other words, do yourself a favor. Get wisdom. Proverbs 8.32-36 sums it up all beautifully. Here, wisdom herself is speaking, and she says, now then, my sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not ignore it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. 
All who hate me love death. If we do not make it our aim to get wisdom, we will suffer injury. We will love death. Therefore, the command to get wisdom, to get insight, is of crucial importance to us. And so the key to happiness, what will make you happy, what will make you blessed, well, Proverbs gives us the answer. Proverbs 3.13 says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Proverbs 24, 13 through 14 says, Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is so sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there is a future hope for you. And your hope will not be cut off. Now, rightly understood, wisdom is what the Bible says is the key to the good life. It's the key to protecting you from bad decisions. First Chronicles 1, we see Solomon there preparing to build the temple. It's an important time. He's getting ready to build this great temple to be dedicated to the worship of the Lord. And God appears to Solomon. And God says to Solomon, Solomon, what would you ask of me to do for you? And Solomon tells God, well, you showed great kindness to David, my father. And you have made me king in his place. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I I may know how to lead these people. And God said to Solomon, well, since you have not asked for riches or fame or power, but wisdom, therefore all of these things shall be given to you. See, Solomon understood that to lead people To get through life, he couldn't do it alone. He needed God's guidance. Now, wisdom is the key to making decisions that will honor God and bring you blessing. So how do we get wisdom? Well, let me give you a few things. First, attend a Bible-preaching church and get involved. Join a Bible-preaching church. Continue to join us here at Redeemer each week in our gatherings. Listen to the teaching Apply it to your own lives. Now, I once heard a pastor say that a sermon isn't finished until it's obeyed. So listen well. Be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who studied the text for themselves and then applied the teaching to their lives. One good way to be more involved in the church is to join as a member. Join us to come together to get people to set up these guardrails in your life that we will pray for you. We will Confront your sin if need be. We will love you, encourage you, bear your burdens together as the body of Christ. See, one way to head off your foolishness is to take steps now to address your life before your sin gets the best of you. Put yourself in a community of believers. Let yourself be known. Open up about your life. Be honest about your struggles. Get help. Get help now before it's too late. Well, second thing that you should do is you should study the scriptures. You should study the Bible. There needs to be this consuming passion to study scripture. Friend, let this be your reputation. Give yourself to knowing God's word. Pray that God would write his words on your heart. When we neglect to read God's word to us, deep down we're telling God that we don't really need him. 
I mean, have you thought about it this way? We're claiming self-sufficiency. When you don't read your Bible, we're putting ourselves in a position above God. It's not a passive act to just leave your Bible there on your nightstand. It's an active decision to show your own supremacy in your life. You're telling God that you don't need him. That you're all the wisdom you need. Now friends, do you regularly read and pour over the Holy Scriptures? And I'm not talking about playing Bible roulette. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? It's when you haven't read your Bible perhaps for weeks. You've left it in your drawer But then you come to this time of real need in your life. So you get out the Bible from your drawer. You dust it off a little bit. And you ask God to give you that special verse. Right? To give you that verse of the day. And so you name it. You claim it. You blab it. You grab it. And you ask God to reveal his will for you. So you close your eyes. You get ready. But see, it becomes a problem when you start flipping through the pages. Of course, you skip over Ezekiel because God doesn't speak through Ezekiel to you that day, right? So you kind of flip back and forth, put your finger down, it becomes a problem when you open your eyes, and it says, now Judas went out and hanged himself. (laughs) And you think, okay, no, that's just a little mistake, God. You're just warming up. Maybe God's warming up in your devotional time, so you do it again, flip to the pages, this time skipping over Leviticus, you get back somewhere else, stick your finger down, and it says, Now go and do likewise. And you think, well, okay, that's just a coincidence, God. You're warming up. Let's do it one more time. Flipping through the pages. Okay, you close your eyes extra tight this time. Pray an extra prayer. This is the verse of the day, and it's here. Now what you should do, go do quickly. (laughs) No, that's not right. You put the Bible away, and oh, I don't need this. (laughs) No, the Bible roulette game doesn't ever work well for gaining true wisdom, I promise. See, we end up looking for some quick technique that's going to solve our problems. We want a quick fix. But wisdom, friends, wisdom is a lifelong pursuit of soaking our minds and soaking our hearts in the Holy Scriptures, which will in turn help us follow God faithfully all the days of our lives. No, friends, if you're not actively reading God's word, then the only alternative is to have an antenna that takes you straight to God to learn who God is. If you're not reading the Bible, you better have something that none of the rest of us have, a telepathy between you and God. And while God can speak to us and communicate in extraordinary ways, God's normal way of communication is through your prayerful reading of his word. Well, a third thing you should do is to listen to your parents. Listen to your parents. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, the writer says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland of grace to your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Listen to your parents. Think about the first chapter of the book of Proverbs. Verse 1, chapter 1. You can just look there. It just tells us that that chapter was written by King Solomon, the king of Israel. And so how did this king treat his mother in this exalted role? Well, you might remember that Solomon's mother is Bathsheba. 
she had married his father David under very ugly circumstances, very displeasing to God, but she was his mother. And when she approached her son in 1 Kings chapter 2, we see that the king arose to meet her, bowed before her. And as he sat on his throne, he had his mother built a throne and she sat right on his right. And they had their conversation. See, even kings know that they are to stoop down to their mothers when they enter the room. Now, those of you youth here, have many of you here that are still living in your parents' homes, I want to encourage you to listen to your parents. Don't write off everything that they have to say. And do it for God's sake. It's so important that when we read the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the summary of the entire law, it says right there, honor your father and your mother. Honor your mother by remembering what she taught you about right and wrong. Honor your father by living a life of integrity and respecting him when he speaks. So beneficial that God says in verse 9 there in chapter 1 of Proverbs that those who listen to their parents will be rewarded. So friends, if you're going to navigate through life and not make a mess of it. You need wisdom. Much of life isn't covered by the moral code of the Bible. And yet many of us, for many of us, this is easier said than done. And that's because of the folly of man. That's the second point in the sermon if you're following the outline. We've seen the importance of wisdom, but we also see the folly of man. The folly of man. There's a problem each of us faces that keeps us from following the ways of wisdom. Now we know from Genesis, we know from the Gospel of John, even from Proverbs 8, that in the beginning was God, and that we were created by God. Now it's interesting how vastly different the creation account is in the Bible than from many of the other ancient creation accounts. You read them, you see that most of them were a result of a power struggle between multiple gods or giants. They fight One will often die, and then they'll make land out of the dead ones and and move on from there. But in Christianity, we have an account of the world not based on a power struggle, but also not based on accident or random chance, but a world and a people created in wisdom, by wisdom. Proverbs 8 actually uses the imagery of wisdom frolicking, overwhelmed with joy as God designed the world to be a place of order, of beauty, of power, of joy, of peace. There's an order and a pattern to reality, to our relationships, to our spiritual life. Going against this will cause everything to crash. Going against this wisdom will always lead to a breakdown. Pastor Tim Keller says that there are two things you need to know in order to be wise. The first is you have to admit that there is a pattern. You have to admit that there is a pattern, that God made the world, that God made us, that God made rules to this world, that God made order for us to follow. The second thing he says is you have to admit that you can't know it all. You can't know it all, that it's largely hidden. If you took some time this week to read the book of Proverbs, you'd notice that in chapters 10 through 15, you get principles regarding how life normally works. You know, if you work hard, you prosper. If you're lazy, you'll be poor. If you live a good life, your life will go well. If you don't, it won't. And it goes on and on and on. And yet from chapter 16 and onward, you see exceptions 
to how life customarily works. You see that for some people who live according to God's absolutes, end up having a lousy life. Some work hard but stay poor because of oppression. Some raise their child just right, but then they go off the rails. You start saying, well, life is messy. Can't predict everything. And yet most of us either think there's no pattern to life, or we think that we can understand everything, lest we need God's help. And so what's the folly of man? Well, it's just that. Either you fail to see there's a pattern, and so Proverbs calls that person a fool, or you fail to admit that you don't know all the rules, that you can't see the whole pattern. And Proverbs calls you a fool. No, friends, we're all practically fools in one way or the other. Do you remember the old movie, The the Christmas Carol with good old Ebenezer Scrooge? Remember that movie? He goes through this rotten life. He's just mean, corrupt. He cares about nothing except himself, not even his own family. Well, at the end of the movie, he's finally figured things out, hasn't he? And at the very end of the movie, he dances and claps his hands and he sings and he says, Now I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know. And he just dances. See, previously, he did not know that he did not know. He only knew that he knew. Now he knows that he did not know. You get all that? I didn't either. It's quite a tongue twister. Well, to put it into terms that I can understand, see, after all that time, Scrooge living this life, being rotten, being mean, being corrupt, he's finally realized that he thought he knew how to live, but he was wrong. He had finally realized that he didn't know, and now he knows. And getting to that point, Scrooge couldn't help but dance. He couldn't help but sing. Now, friends, have you gotten to that point? Or do you think you know everything? Are you struggling with the folly of man, thinking that you know better? We'll look back again at chapter 1, verse 7. I think this is really the central verse of the entire book of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The folly of man is we think we know, but true wisdom is fearing God because only he knows. See, what verse 7 is saying is what your ABCs are to reading Shakespeare. It's what playing the scales are to performing Bach. It's what 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to doing calculus. That's what the fear of the Lord is to wisdom. We start with fearing the Lord, and we never, ever, ever, ever leave it behind. It's the beginning of wisdom is believing that God is God, and you are not. See, unless God is the basis of your identity, you will be a fool. Only if God is more important than your money, only then will you make decisions that will help you financially and be a blessing to the world. Only when God is more important than your marriage will you make good choices in who you want to marry. Only when God is more important than your singleness will you maximize every single moment to the glory of God. But see, the problem is we don't fear the Lord. 
because we think we're all wise. And there's several myths that come out of this. There's at least three temptations I thought of as I read this. When we think about wisdom, some of us think older means wiser. But we think automatically that as we get older or as we see those who get older, that they must have wisdom. But if I just put on some years, I'll be automatically wise. But you can be young and foolish, and you can also be old and foolish. Old age should lead to wisdom, but may not as evidenced by the news every night. Another myth is that intellect and wisdom are synonymous. But you can have a high IQ, you can have a high grade point average at university and not be wise. We've all seen incredibly smart people make incredibly devastating decisions. A third myth is that education and wisdom are synonymous. But you can be just as foolish as the person sitting next to you and have a master's degree or a PhD. There won't be any of assistance to you if you don't have wisdom. Now, the great academic institution, Harvard University, started out as a religious institution training men for pastoral ministry. If you look at their insignia, look at their logo, their symbol began with two books. The two books symbolize one for the Old Testament and one for the New Testament. It communicated that God has everything to say to us. Well, and yet over the years, Harvard changed. No longer was it a training ground for young pastors. And instead, they added a third book there to their logo. It was a third book to say that, no, in fact, man does have something to say. Something to add to the word of God. Now, friends, friends, do you think you have anything to add to the word of God Do you think you're wise? See, truly wise people are extremely aware of their foolishness. Fools think they're wise. If you don't think you're a fool, you're a fool. This is the folly of man. But there's hope. There is hope for us, and that's the third point. It's the wisdom of God. There's this folly of man, but there's hope. The wisdom of God. There's hope for all of us. But it's not that we can change our lives by trying harder, by doing better. But it's by a changed heart. Turn over to Proverbs 4, 23 through 26. There in verse 23, the author says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So the author's telling us, that our heart is a spring, it's not a pool. A spring is an outgushing stream of water. What he's saying is that's the same as the heart. The heart is an outgushing of feelings. It's an outgushing of emotions, of thoughts. And so what's in your heart, it affects your actions. It affects your thinking. Everything in your life comes from what happens in your heart. Once you get truth in your heart, then you can look at what you say in verse 24. Look at what you look at, verse 25, your actions, verse 26, because everything flows out of the heart. You need a new heart. And you can only get that from Jesus. Martin Luther figured this out. He was an Augustinian monk who started the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century. 
His vicar general back when he was in the Catholic Church was Johann von Staupitz. He was also Luther's confessor. And so Luther would go in to Father and confess his sins. But there's a small problem because pretty soon Luther was going in for six hour-long confessionals every single day. This was driving von Staupitz just crazy. I mean, six hours listening to Luther talk and talk and talk and talk. And so one day, he just in the middle of the confessional said, Martin, stop. It's as if each time you break wind, you call that a sin. Luther just unfazed. He answered brilliantly. He said, Father von Staupitz, my big problem has always been self-centeredness. I wanted to find the path to live, and so I became a monk. And so now I care for the poor, but I've realized that I don't do it for the poor, but for the sake of myself. I don't do it for God. And when I come to confess, I realize that I'm not doing it for humility. I like to think of myself as humble and noble, not proud. I've stopped certain sins, but I'm just as self-centered as I was before, just as addicted. And then he says, Father, I can't change my heart. I can't change my heart. See, Luther knew his Bible. He also knew him himself. He knew he couldn't change on his own, and neither can we. Only God can do this. Which is why in Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus says in John chapter 1, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now it is interesting, Jesus doesn't say, come. I will show you the way. No, Jesus says, come, I am the way. In other words, Jesus lived out and fulfilled the book of Proverbs perfectly. He was the wise man par excellence. He not only demonstrated perfect wisdom, he was perfect wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus is the wisdom from God, the very incarnation of wisdom. He embodied it perfectly. And while Solomon was a wise man, Jesus says in Matthew 12, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He says, I have come to live this life for you. And he's the only one who has lived the perfectly wise life. All kinds of sages say, this is the way you should live. And then you go out and try to live it. But no other sage has said, This is the way to live, and yet I have come to live that life for you. But Jesus says, I know you can't live it, so I did it in your place. I lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died because of your sin. The Bible says when you trust in God to save you, that you're born again. That in that moment, God gives you a new heart. Only Jesus being wisdom for you can save you. And then in the infinite wisdom of God, we see that Jesus, he rose from the dead to prove that he is the infinitely wise God. Now, I know, friends, there are times in your life when you can't see Jesus' wisdom beyond what's going on in your life. 
Things are complicated. Things are confusing. Things are difficult. But friends, the wisdom of God is not always obvious. I mean, take, for example, the end of the Gospels. You look at the cross and you say, God, what are you doing? Jesus is stripped naked. He's beaten. He's dying in a most humiliating death on the cross. But behind the whole thing, the whole time, there's a whole plan. And it is that Jesus would rise from the dead. He would rise and he would be alive. In that moment on the cross, when it was confusing to all, he was conquering death and destruction. He was conquering sin. He was saving us from our sins that whole time. You see Mary there crying at the cross, weeping as her son faces death. You see Peter running scared for his life. Now Jesus is being executed, but God's perfect plan is also being executed. Now, the cross is foolishness to us, but it is the wisdom of God. Only when God changes your heart, only when he gives you a new heart and sets your affections on him, do you cease being a fool. So to take your heart away from money or family or marriage or food, you have to have a better beauty. You can't just say, stop it, stop it, stop thinking about money, stop thinking about marriage, food, whatever it is. No, instead, you need the beauty of Jesus to melt your hearts. Only when money is second to Jesus will you make wise financial decisions. Only when marriage is second to Jesus will you love your spouse as Christ loved the church. My friends, as we go to the communion table today, consider this. Consider the death of Christ. The wisdom of God has died for you. It's because when he hung there on the cross and cried out, why have you forsaken me? He was in that moment taking our deep darkness and our sin. If you're here today and you don't know him, you don't know Jesus, you don't follow Jesus, friends, your life will be confusing. You'll be lost and you'll never find true wisdom apart from Jesus. Come to him today. Come to him right now. As you consider this most important of all decisions, as you consider giving your life to Christ and getting a new heart, the believing community, those among us who have repented of our sin and trusted in him to save us from our sins, will be taking part in something called communion. This is a visual display of what I've just been talking about. It's a visual display of what Jesus has done for us. The bread symbolizing Christ's perfect life for us. The cup symbolizing his shed blood in his death for us. It helps remind us of the reality that we now live. So while we're taking part in this meal, let the bread and let the cup pass you by. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, give us instruction. He gives this instruction. says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. (laughs) For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So let the bread, let the cup pass you by, but stop whatever is on your mind and consider what Jesus has done. Friend, if you don't yet believe, consider his perfect life. Consider his perfect death 
And understand that there's no checklist of things to do to become a Christian. That's why we never place in the bullets in a checklist of all the things you need to do this week to become a Christian. Because see, you can't do it on your own. If there's anything that you've heard this morning, please know that you can't earn your salvation. You can't earn God's favor on your own. If we gave you a checklist of things to do this week, you would fail. We would all fail. That's why we don't do it, because it's like giving you a test that you could never pass. No, we need somebody to pass the test for us. We need someone else to be perfect for us. We need someone to die for our sins, to be our substitute. And Jesus has done that. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you, to bring you to God. No, Jesus gives new life. The way to follow this path of wisdom and gain everlasting life, the Bible tells us to repent of our sin. It's to acknowledge, even now, that you can't do it on your own. You need God's help. You need God to do it all for you and to trust in Jesus to save you. You can do this today. You can do this from your seat. You can become a follower of Christ. It is your only hope. Well, if you're here and you're a Christian who's repenting your sin, we invite you to take part of this meal. But there may be some of you who just need to sit back, need to deal with your own heart this morning. Maybe there's some lingering unrepentant sin, meaning you haven't stopped the pattern of sin. Maybe there's someone in here even who you're unreconciled to. Friend, I encourage you to sit back, confess your sin, and join us in communion next month when we take part of this meal again together. Well, before we proceed with communion, let's take some time now to reflect on this and silently confess our sin before the Lord.